So let's get going. Good to see you all here today. Um, my name is Bill Shambra, and I'm director of Hudson Institute's Bradley Center for Philanthropy and Civic Renewal. Uh, Kristen McIntyre and I welcome you to today's discussion of the annual report on American giving, uh, recently published by the Giving USA Foundation and its research partner, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. Special welcome to our uh, live streaming viewers coming to us from the websites of the Chronicle of Philanthropy and the Curtis Group. Not the nonprofit quarterly. I was hoping that, but that's okay, Ruth. That's <laughs> First, a brief uh, preview of coming attractions, uh, of which at this point there's only one. There will be some others, but right now we only have one since as uh, many of you probably know by now, the Bradley Center is going to be shuttering its doors at the end of this calendar year. Uh, we don't have a date yet, but we have a fantastic topic uh, for discussion in a monograph written by Ben Soskis, uh, the historian who recently authored a, a much-tweeted piece in The Atlantic entitled The Importance of Criticizing Philanthropy. If you're not familiar with that piece, I would advise you to go right out and look it up. It really is a terrific piece. Uh, the Bradley Center some time ago commissioned uh, Ben to take a look at one of the central conceits of modern foundations, namely that uh, old, disreputable, limited, parochial, band-aid dispensing charity has been supplanted once and for all by sleek, modern, efficient, root-cause-seeking philanthropy. I said charity. Did I say philanthropy before? What did I say? Ch charity. Okay, I said it right. Sorry. Uh, has been, anyway, the charity-philanthropy distinction, which is absolutely central to uh, uh, modern philanthropy. Uh, the resulting monograph, I think, is probably going to stand for some time as the most concise and authoritative account of that defining distinction. So we'll let you know as soon as we've set a date uh, for that event. Now back to today's panel. Uh, the lating, uh, latest Giving USA estimate covering the year 2013 is now the most recent plot point in a line that stretches back over 50 years. It's widely acknowledged to be the most authoritative and comprehensive estimate available for giving in the United States. It is therefore our honor uh, once again this year, the fifth year in a row, uh, for the Bradley Center to co-sponsor today's event with Giving USA Foundation, uh, Indiana's School of Philanthropy, and the Chronicle of Philanthropy, uh, in order to discuss the implications of this year's estimate in the heart of the nation's capital. We have as assembled a distinguished panel to do so, and if you've been here at previous events, it will be a very familiar panel because it's been exactly the same panel for five years. Uh, including leading representatives of the organizations behind the numbers. My sole duty is to introduce our moderator for today's panels, uh, Stacy Palmer. Stacy is the founding editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy um, and a, a very good editor. She's edited my stuff, uh, which is to say lightly. You know, she's a very good and light-handed editor. Uh, the Journal of Record for the World of Foundations and is a frequent uh, conference speaker and widely cited expert on nonprofits and foundations. So it's a pleasure to have you back as our moderator, Stacy. So take it away. 
Thank you, Bill. And before we start talking about Giving USA, I want to thank Bill for all of the tremendous work that Hudson has done. I think all of us are going to miss the fact that we're not going to have these sessions just like this. I hope we're going to be able to have other versions of things. Um, but I think we all owe Bill a round of applause for the great work that he's done. Um, it does feel a little bit like deja vu all over again, um, given that we have the same panelists, but it the wonderful thing about doing this year's edition of this event is the fact that there was better news in Giving USA than we have seen in previous years. Um, and so I was grateful not to have to take out my notes from last year and the previous years and say, it's going to be a long time till Giving recovers. Fortunately, we seem to see indications that the recovery may already be here, which was certainly the headline news out of Giving USA. But we also see that many of the shifts that are going on in philanthropy that may be permanent ones um, are available as you look and dig deeper into the numbers. And we'll look at some of the demographic and other trends that are going on. We certainly see that some groups did a whole lot better than others, in part powered by giving by the affluent. Some causes didn't do so well. Social services <coughs> didn't do great. Religion has had its continuing struggles. What does that mean for the state of giving? What's going to happen in 2014? <coughs> Those are some of the questions that we'll cover. And really, what are some of the permanent changes because of the Great Recession? So I hope our panelists will talk about those things. First, we're going to hear um, from Patrick Rooney, who did the numbers, came up with them, has been looking at this for such a long time, just to help us understand what we're even talking about with Giving USA, and then our panelists will respond. Patrick? All right. Someone knows the t technology better than me. That's perfect. So uh, Giving USA has been uh, in operation for almost 60 years, and as such, it's really sort of the definitive yearbook on philanthropy in terms of looking at all the sources and uses simultaneously, got a nice long data run. I think the Center on Philanthropy now, the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy has been doing this for 13 or 14 years, and... Uh, I think it's been a wonderful partnership with the Giving USA Foundation and the Giving Institute. Um, but from a scholarly pr perspective, it's, it's nice to have such a nice long data series. Well, you can't see the big number real clearly, but at the top of the page, you see the total giving from all sources, $335 billion. Uh, you know, the good news, bad news is that that number is a substantial improvement over last year and the last several years. Uh, the bad news is that we are still not back to where we were in 2007. And I bring that up not to say that the number in 2007, which was in inflation-adjusted dollars, about $350 billion. So we're about four percentage points away from where we were before the Great Recession began. It's not to say that that's an ultimate goal in itself or that that is enough, right? But it's just to say, as a benchmark, how we fare through the business cycle, it's taken us this long to get back to where we were, and we're not quite there yet. So hopefully within a year or two, we'll, we'll be back to uh, where we were before the Great Recession began. Just want to point out a couple of highlights. Giving by living individuals, 72% uh, of the total, it's been about three-fourths for a while. But as an absolute percentage, it's losing market share. One of the reasons it's lost market share, though, is giving by foundations has increased. So I ask you to keep in mind that, that foundation grant making 
includes family foundations. In fact, about 45% of that total is from family foundations. And so you see living individuals giving through two different checkbooks, their family foundations and their family checkbooks. And together, when you add that in with charitable bequests at 8% of the total, that's about 87 88% <coughs> of total giving. Now, most of you know I'm not one for rounding, but if we were, if we were to round, that would bring us to about 90, you know, nine, cent, 9 cents out of every dollar, or 9 cents out of every 10 that is given, is given by households either living through the family foundations or when they've passed uh, through a charitable bequest. So, you know, the role of individuals, the role of families is very important uh, with respect to philanthropy. Uh, corporations give 5%, and, and again, corporate giving uh, is not a large share of the total, but it plays an important role in terms of, uh, you know, doing greater due diligence and so on, and more structured philanthropic giving through independent foundations and family foundations at 15% also may play a larger share, disproportionate share in terms of attracting uh, donations from others as well. Where does the money go? 31% goes to religious organizations. And I want to stress that when we say religious organizations, this is faith formation. This is mass mosque synagogue, right? This is not Notre Dame, which might be influenced by Catholic values, or it is not a Jewish hospital, which might also be influenced by, uh, by religious values. Not Catholic values. Um, and it's not giving to United Way, which might also be influenced by religious values. So the role of religious values is understated at 31%, but that is the role, I mean, that is the amount and the share given to organizations whose primary mission is faith formation, proselytizing, and so on. Education gets 16% of the pie, the second largest piece. Education has done very well during the recovery and especially well uh, following the uh, stock market boom uh, last year. Human services, 12%. Gifts to foundations. So this is money that those of us who are raising dollars would like to see in our accounts, but we're also happy to see it at least in the foundation accounts because that's going into philanthropy in a permanent way. Health, 10%. Public society benefit is this admixture of United Ways, Jewish Federations, Catholic Charity, and donor advice funds. Arts, culture, humanities, 5%. International, 4%. Environment, 3%. Gifts to individual, 1%. Gifts to individual is primarily, these are free and deeply discounted drugs that farmers are donating. So we're counting this because it's, it's a, not, a big enough piece of the pie that we're tracking that, but it, um, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. All right, let's look at rates of change. These are in nominal dollars. We also have these in, in uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. 4.4% total increase. Again, this is a fairly robust increase compared to uh, what we saw during the Great Recession and, and the first couple of years coming out of the recession, smaller than, than the prior year. Uh, not a big surprise that individual giving, which is the leading driver of philanthropy, 4.2%. Uh, Bequest giving, 8.7%. That's a very rapid increase. One of the things we'll see when we look at the bequest giving historically is that bequest giving is often driven 
by a few key estates. Who dies, when, and how much they give that year. So that's fairly volatile. Foundation grant making, uh, very consistent the last couple of years, 5.7% increase. Corporate giving declined 1.9%. This is our, our estimate, uh, and, and this is based on a couple of phenomenon. A little bit of a surprise, given the fact that corporate profits increased last year, GDP increased, some of the key drivers of this. But keep in mind that corporate giving the prior year increased 17%, and keep in mind that corporate profits the prior year was growing even more robustly, and GDP had grown more robustly. If you look at the longer-term trend, corporate giving still, still exceeds giving before the Great Recession began. And so while this is a little bit of a take-back uh, compared to the prior year, this is still above, uh, at or above the trend line. I'm not going to do both inflation-adjusted dollars uh, just because of, for time purposes. Um, in current dollars, giving to religion declined last year, and uh, you know, one of the things that is surprising about this is we used to say that giving to religion, or I used to say giving to religion, was like the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare, that it used to increase in good times and in bad. Not rapidly, but it would increase. What we've seen since the Great Recession was that giving to religion has been flat or declining most years, and that the increases are the exception. And if you go back to the year 2000, giving to religion has increased more than 2% in inflation-adjusted dollars only once. It has been flat or declining more years than it has increased. And I think this is, empirically, this is an important trend to notice because we used to say giving to religion was losing market share but only because it wasn't growing as rapidly as other, other sources or other uses, excuse me. Now what we're seeing is that giving to religion is actually uh, declining uh, both as market share but also in, in absolute terms. Education grew 8.9%. We, we track separately uh, publicly reported gifts of a million dollars or more. Higher ed has gotten 45 to 55% of those every quarter. <coughs> K through 12 in libraries gets another 5 to 10% every quarter. So education has done well, especially driven at the high-end gifts. Um, and this is, if you look at changes in giving to education and changes in the S&P 500, you see a strong correlation there. Human services increased 2.2%. One of the things we saw during the Great Recession and immediately afterwards was that Many foundations and high net worth households said, I'm going to reallocate my philanthropic portfolio to help feed the hungry and house the homeless. And so giving to human services increased at a more rapid growth than some of the other subsectors. Now, what we're observing is that giving to human services four years out of the recession has uh, resumed uh, its, its role uh, its growth at a, at a lower role, and that uh, people are giving to uh, education, the arts, uh, international, uh, not as much this year, but environmental more so. They're giving to causes that they had given to at a greater rates pre-Great Recession, and that human services has grown, but not as rapidly. Um, I was teasing Ruth uh, before we came in here that when I was looking at our results and I said, 
well, who's going to be really happy about these results and who's going to be really angry? I thought the one person who's going to be really angry is Ruth, so we'll see what she has to say at the end of our program. I'm just, just guessing. <laughs> uh, gifts to foundations. Here's a lot of volatility. So two years ago, increased 32%. Last year, declined 15.5%. Keep in mind that gifts to foundations often happens as part of an estate gift or following a liquidity event. So an entrepreneur sells his or her business and they put money either into a donor advice fund or uh, if it's really a big business, they put money into a, a family foundation. And so depending on who dies in a given year or depending on who has the liquidity event and how philanthropic they are, we'll see this volatility in gifts to foundations. Health increased 6%. Public society benefit 8.5%. This 8.5% is largely driven by increases to donor advised funds. So if you look at United Ways, Jewish Federation, Catholic Charities, the other kind of federated campaigns, those have uh, not grown very rapidly and some have declined, but uh, the donor advised funds, the national donor advised funds, are, are growing at a fairly dramatic rate. So one of our goals is, is to be able to unpack that data and, and report those out separately in the future. We're not there yet, and we'd like to be, so uh, we'll see if we can do that in the future. Arts and culture, uh, fairly dramatic increases the last two years, 7.8%. International declined six, uh, over 6.5% last year. This is a little surprising because international has been the fastest-growing subsector since 911. It's been the fastest-growing subsector since we started tracking it in 1987. And I think, we think that this is is two causes. Um, One, that there were very few major national or natural disasters worldwide that don't attract all of the international uh, dollars, but it's a big driver for that. And I think that's an inflection point there. But also because when you look at the trend, uh, international had been growing so rapidly that this is a little bit more of a return to the trend line, perhaps. Um, but I think it's really more the lack of uh, natural disasters that, drew, that draw attention to it. Environment and animals has grown very robustly the last two years at 7.5%. And again, this is an area that, that did not do so well during the Great Recession and coming out of it. And I think some people are saying, okay, now that the recovery is in full force. Unemployment still higher than we'd like, but dramatically lower than it was at the depths of the Great Recession, uh, that more dollars are going into environment, animals, arts and culture, and so on, than we had seen before. Inflation-adjusted dollars I'm not going to talk about. Um, I think the key piece of this histogram is to notice how dramatic and how deep the Great Recession was. When we look at this, the, the bars are inflation-adjusted dollars, and the, and the dots represent nominal dollars. But in either way, the Great Recession had the largest negative impact on philanthropy that we've ever seen. And inflation-adjusted dollars, total giving declined 15.5% during the Great Recession. We're coming back, but glass half empty, we're not all the way there. Glass half full, we've made s- substantial progress, and we should exceed the 2007 benchmark uh, either next year or certainly the following year, as long as the economy continues to recover. Yes, by individuals, uh, you can see that the top uh, line is in inflation-adjusted dollars. Before the tech boom, 
giving by individuals increased by about 1.1% in inflation-adjusted dollars compounded annually for many years. So it was growing, but, but slowly. During the tech boom, we saw this dramatic increase. We saw a little give back following the recession uh, induced by the attack in America. Following that recovery, we see uh, a fairly dramatic uptick again. What's interesting is, even after the tech bubble burst, though, we never went back down to where we were in 1993, 94, and so on. So it's been sustained at a higher level. Household giving, though, fell the most precipitously during the Great Recession. They lost about 18 points. Uh, so uh, that is a very precipitous decline and has been slower to recover than some of the other sources. And we're starting to come out of this, but you can see it's been a, a slower, um, slower recovery. Giving by foundations, you know, found, you know, the one good, one good news about foundations is they're required by law to pay out 5% of their asset base. Now, they may pay it out based on last year's <laughs> assets or two years or three years and so on, or even a longer moving average, but they are going to pay it out. And so uh, it's, a small, it's a smoother uh, uh, trend line than what you see for some of the other sources that are much more uh, intimately affected by changes in the economy. Giving by bequests, this is the chart that makes me crazy. Um, try forecasting this, very difficult. Um, and particularly because it's affected not only by the volatility of who dies and, and so on, but by tracking when the estate closes. It's not just if there's an estate, but when does it close and what year does it close in. Um, but you can see that there's a, a fair amount of volatility there. Obviously, it's affected um, by changes in values that are affected by the business cycle. But, but the one thing we can discern from this is that um, people are not, they're not timing their deaths with changes in the economy. And overall, that's a good thing, right? Corporate giving, we see a very strong business cycle effect here. Corporate giving is largely predicated on corporate profitability and GDP overall. And uh, one of the things that's been interesting phenomenon in this recovery is you know, people have referred to this as the jobless recovery or the joyless recovery, that there, have not, there has not been the same formation of new jobs that we see in, in, in other uh, business cycles. And frankly, one of the reasons the unemployment rate has declined is because people are leaving the labor force at a faster rate than they are joining it, uh, and not as much because of job creation. And so uh, one of the pieces with this, though, is that corporations – during the Great Recession, wrung out every nickel of excess uh, labor costs as they saw it, and so they are tremendously profitable. And, and as the recovery grows, we've seen increases in corporate giving. If you look at this market share uh, of the sources of giving, you can see on the far right, for the last five years, household giving, individual giving, has averaged 72%. Go back to the far left, and uh, historically, so the first um, decade or so of, of, of these time periods, and we see that household giving, individual giving was 83%. The, the difference really is not corporate <coughs> giving. You see that's pretty static at 5%. But, and the bequest giving has bounced around a little bit, little bit, but it's really the foundation grant making that's grown the most dramatically. And again, this has really been driven by family foundations. And so uh, I would argue that the, the decline in the market share from individuals has really largely been offset by the increase in the uh, creation and, and influence of family foundations. 
All right, total giving is percentage of GDP, uh, 2% last year. It had dipped down to 1.9% during and immediately following the Great Recession. Uh, good news, bad news. It increases the percentage of market share. Good news. Bad news is we're still stuck at 2%. One of the things that uh, you know, Stacey's staff interviewed me about is, you know, what would it take to move the needle and uh, from 2% to 4 or 5 much less the biblical tithe of 10%. And, uh, and I use this Starbucks comparison. So this is not an indictment of Starbucks. Great company. They, they spend more money on fringe benefits for their health care for their employees than they do on the coffee beans. Uh, now they're adding uh, college as a fringe benefit for many of the people who work there for a while. So I, I'm not saying this to devalue Starbucks as a company. But if you think of Starbucks as an example of frivolous consumption, and I do, um, but whether it's Starbucks or whether it's something else, <laughs> yeah, that's brand neutral. That was not an accident. <laughs> um, if we, think of, you know, if we think about frivolous consumption, if we all reallocated, each household reallocated $5 a day of frivolous consumption to philanthropy, that would double household giving overnight. And I bring this up because other people have talked about, well, if the Gates Foundation gave more or the billionaires, the, the philanthropy 400 gave more each, um, if, if we did this or if we did that, you know, we could get to a bigger number. But I think here's a very feasible plan, a very feasible calculation. $5 a day would double household giving. Now, clearly, if you look back over the last 40 years, it hasn't happened. So this is clearly a values choice. And one of the things about philanthropy is it's voluntary. So I, I'm going to be the last person in the room to say we should increase taxes to stimulate philanthropy. Okay? Now, increasing the top marginal tax rate would stimulate philanthropy in the short run. Empirically, that's true. But I'm, that's not the argument I want to make. But I, but I think for those of us in the philanthropic sector, we have to ask the question, why are we not offering value? Why are we not offering inducements in terms of our core mission and our core activities that is attracting a higher share of GDP to the philanthropic sector. Well, as an economist, I was curious about the relationship between changes in wealth as proxied by the S&P 500 and changes in philanthropy. This looks at total giving. If you look at the, the relationship with household giving or with uh, foundation grant making, the correlation is even tighter. Now, it's not quite as volatile as the S&P 500, but you see a very strong relationship. If you plot out the S&P 500 and our million-dollar list, the, the list of publicly reported gifts of a million dollars or more, you do it by quarter or by month, huge, huge correlation between uh, those phenomena. All right, this is back to my point about why are we stuck at 2%. Individual, individual giving as a percentage of disposable, that is after-tax income, we're stuck at 2%, 1.9% last year. Corporate giving, we talked about corporate giving growing, but corporate giving hasn't grown as rapidly as corporate profits. And so, therefore, corporate giving as a share of, of pre-tax corporate profits is stuck at 8%. It's actually lower than its long-term trend of 0.9%, i.e. just under 1%. When we look at where does the money go, the share of giving to religious organizations 
for the first 40 years was in excess of, I mean, first 20 years was in excess of 50%. For the last decade, it's been about a third. And we saw this year it was 31%. So again, giving to religion is losing market share in part because other sources, other uses are growing more rapidly, but also in part because giving to religion has uh, declined in absolute and relative terms the last few years. The big winners in this um, are, are really giving to international, giving to environment. If you look at the last, you know, since 1987, those have been the big, biggest increases in market share, but some other subsectors have done well as well. Well, one part of philanthropy is, is giving, Another part of philanthropy, though, is volunteerism. And so I just want to add uh, a little bit about this. 65 million people volunteer each year. In our study on philanthropy through the panel study, we survey the same 8,000 households every year. And we see that about two-thirds of Americans, between two-thirds and 70%, donate every year. So more people donate every year than vote for the president. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Uh, is a good thing in terms of philanthropy. I'm not, I'm not so sure about in terms of building a civil society that, uh, that it's good that there are more people giving than uh, who are uh, voting. Uh, but as a percentage of volunteerism, I think it's disappointing that only about one-fourth of Americans are volunteering. I think it's an interesting experience where we have involuntary volunteerism at schools, right, those of you who have children know your kids have to get service hours. My youngest son's always saying, Daddy, I need service hours. Okay, do this. <laughs> and I don't have to pay them. I love it. <laughs> one of the things, and Tom may talk more about this, uh, he's more intimately familiar with this, but one of the things that has been talked about is, is there more competition among nonprofits? And when you look at this histogram, it looks like the amount of competition has declined. And in fact, a number of charities did go bankrupt or close their doors during the Great Recession and immediately following that. But a big part of this decline from almost 1.3 million to just over a million um, in the last few years is because the IRS um, tidied up their records. And there were a number of, of uh, charities that were really defunct, but they hadn't, the IRS hadn't noticed and the charities hadn't bothered to officially close themselves or report that to the IRS if they had closed themselves. So part of this uh, attenuation of the number of charities uh, is, is an accounting difference, I think, rather than a real trend. Keep in mind that because religious uh, charities that are primarily proselytizing uh, organizations don't have to file an IRS 990, some of them do, but they don't, are not required to, um, it's estimated that there's another 300 to 350,000 charities that, uh, whose primary mission is, is religious fulfillment. So uh, there is a lot of competition for those philanthropic dollars. Uh, there's been um, you know, more growth recently in, in charitable support than there has been growth in the number of charities, but I think that's really uh, due to an accounting error rather than a, a, a reality. Um, I would encourage you to go to, the, uh, to our website, uh, <coughs> www.givingusareports.com, Dot org slash 2014. There is a free executive summary. I said free, um, but there's also a more complete report that you can buy and PowerPoints like these that you can buy on the website as well, and I would encourage you to do that. 
I will be here to answer questions after my colleagues on the panel uh, do their shtick. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Tom Pollock, who studies nonprofits at the Urban Institute. So he'll give us another view from the researcher's desk. Thanks, Stacy. Thanks, Patrick. Um, let me begin by, by giving you some perspective on the finances of nonprofits. I think it's very important to keep in mind that private contributions play a very, very important role in the life of most nonprofit organizations, but, but not in all. Um, overall, the, the public charities around the country, excluding religious congregations, um, took in around $1.6 trillion in, in total revenue in 2011. Um, you know, we would expect uh, 2013 numbers probably to be, uh, you know, 5 or 10% higher than that, although we, we don't yet have the data. So, so overall, we see private contributions accounting for around 12, somewhere between 12 and 13 percent of the, of the total revenue for these public charities. Um, the lion's share of the revenue is coming from so-called program service revenue, um, which includes everything from um, government fees and contracts going to human service organizations to um, purchases of tickets in the performing arts and museums, um, you know, that, that represents to, to patient fees, to, to the tuition you pay when you, when you send a child to college, which I'm well acquainted with. Um, we also see around 10% of the revenue of the sector coming from government <coughs> grants as opposed to, to con grants as opposed to fees and contracts. Um, and then we see the, the, the remaining sort of five to ten percent coming from a, a mix of investments and and other and some other sources of income. And un unfortunately, our data tends to lag a little bit behind the, the Giving USA estimates. Uh, we rely on organizations around the country filing their 990s, and then we in turn have to rely on on the IRS to to make them readily available to us and to help us through the process of key punching the data. And just as an aside, one of our, our longstanding interests is in working with Indiana and the Aspen Institute and uh, GuideStar and the Foundation Center in promoting electronic filing, since that will give us much quicker access to accurate data. But in the absence of, of full sort of population-wide data on, on the revenue of the sector in 2013, what we have done over the past couple of years is kind of create a kind of a leading indicator for the financial health of the sector. And the way we do that is we look at the, the 25 to 30 percent of the organizations that, that have in fact filed their 990s with the IRS um, as of you know, our most recent business master file from the IRS. And, and we have very limited financial data from those. Basically, what we have is all total revenue and total assets. But what we can look at is just the changes in the, the, those total revenue numbers from year to year. And what we see for that kind of 25 to 30 percent that are reporting is that um, far, more, far more showed substantial increases in revenue than, than showed decreases. So in that sense, our, our findings are certainly consistent with with what Patrick is seeing in the, in the, the world of, of private contributions. Um, to be more precise about it, um, around, let's see, 46% of organizations reported a gain in 2013. 
In contrast, 38% reported some sort of decline, with the remainder somewhere in the middle. Framed a little differently, around 40% were sort of in the middle, maybe had small gains, small declines. 26% had, had losses of 10% or more. In contrast, around a third had increases of 10% or more. So once again, I think you know, overall the picture is certainly consistent with Patrick's research. Um, you know, the sector certainly appears to be moving in the right, right direction. Um, but, you know, we really won't know for another year or two, you know, so the true, the true so status of the, the financial health of nonprofit organizations. So, switching gears here a little bit, um, you know, as, as Patrick began discussing at the end of his talk, you know, giving has remained remarkably flat over many, many years. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, how, where we stand in our understanding of those trends. Um, first off, I think it's important to recognize, although the, you know, the aggregate number of volunteers looks relatively stable, um, we, we actually see a, you know, a statistically significant decline in volunteer rates this past year. They actually dropped by 1.1 percent um, based on the current population survey data, which is a, you know, very, very, very broad survey of American households. Um, that, from my perspective, certainly you know bodes bodes poorly for you know the the future health of the nonprofit sector. Um, volunteering and contributions are very very highly correlated, and you know the fact that you see declines after you know sort of really ten or twenty years of of sort of infrastructure building in the sector. You know the creation of volunteer centers around the country, the creation of you know, very active efforts by United Ways around the country to promote, to promote volunteering, um, yet with apparently very little or, or even a negative impact, um, you know, does not bode well. What, what, what are the causes? Um, you know, I think at this point we can only speculate. Um, you know, one, one potential cause is, is the decline of, in the religiosity of, of the American public. Um, as Patrick's statistics showed, um, you know, the, the, the private contributions flowing to religion have declined quite dramatically over the past 30 years. And you know, once again, that's consistent with other statistics on so sort of, you know declining church attendance and so sort of the, the decline in in sort of formal religiosity of of Americans. Um, I'll talk more about this in a minute, but um, you know. Religious adherence is very highly correlated with, with giving. So to the extent that you see this decline in religious adherence as you know, a cause rather than a symptom of something else, um, you, know, you could argue that that you know, may, may be part of the explanation for why giving is, is as flat as it is despite lots of efforts over the past couple decades to, to improve it. Um, another another possible explanation is so the role of of technology and the impact that you know the ubiquitous cell phones and computers have on in sort of undermining the civic engagement and of the American people, especially of of the younger generations. Um, you know, I think I think it's it's very likely that that plays a role. The magnitude of that role, I think, remains to be seen. 
Um, you know, the inequal economic inequality, the instability of the middle class, clearly that seems likely to play a substantial role as well. If, if families are saving for college educations and feeling very unstable in their financial well-being, um, you know, that certainly seems highly likely to depress their, their willingness to, to give their discretionary dollars to, to charity. You know, more broadly, the, the indictment of, you know, Bob Putnam uh, on the, the sort of health of social capital in America, um, certainly sort of, I think, is part of the underlying context of, of giving in America. Um, you know, I won't sort of open that longer argument, but, but I, you know, that clearly is a, is a factor. Um, finally, I'd like to kind of turn my comments to, to, you know, how we should be thinking about increasing the rates of giving in America. I mean, I think Patrick's point is a is a, a nice, vivid one. That well, if we all just gave five dollars more a day, we would double giving in America. I mean, that I think is a good, concrete way of thinking about this. But I think at a, at a deeper level, I think we also have to think about so the civic culture that we have in America, and you know the the impact of. You know, elections in in U.S. elections, the sense of polarization we have in the country, um, the sense you know the, the the broader sense that you know there's very little that can be accomplished in the public sphere in America. I think you know is likely to have contributed to some of this you know stagnation or decline we see in both the giving and and volunteering statistics. Um, you know, some of you might say that's perhaps an opportunity that President Obama missed. You know, arguably he had the opportunity in his, after his first election to, to build on the, the energizing impact that that campaign had on so the American civic culture. Um, I, th I think that can be debated one way or another. Um, but, you know... I should note that you know the World Cup. I think I'm not sure if it's started yet, but um, it's about to. If it hasn't started yet, <laughs> and I think there's sort of a metaphor from from um, from soccer and other team sports that we should sort of keep in mind as we think about how to rejuvenate sort of civic culture and strengthen giving and volunteering in America. Um, if you look at how the American team sort of rebuilt over the past year, four years, I think maybe that's a good metaphor for the nonprofit sector as well. We see, you know, just an outpouring of interest, you know, around the country in collective impact projects. And the work I, I do in, in cities on their community platform project, you know, I, I, I can't think of a city that doesn't have some sort of collective impact project underway. I think that's a, that's a good sort of step in the right direction. You know, it's nonprofit organizations trying, you know, so leading by example, showing that they can, in fact, work together for the, the good of the community as a whole. Um, I would say it's a good first step, but I don't think it goes quite, quite far enough. I think, you know, we would see potentially a, a significant increase in giving and volunteering if nonprofits were to take that kind of model so to, a, to a further level to say, let's really see if we can collectively fundraise. Let's see if we can collectively mobilize the whole community, not just coordinate our work and coordinate our work with government, but, but truly try to mobilize the full community, both middle class and lower income communities as well as the wealthy 
around sort of civic purposes. I think when that takes place, then I think we really have the potential to see dramatic increases in, in, in giving and volunteering. And, you know, that to me, the, to, to, to finish out the soccer analogy, the parallel to me is, you know, you had to kind of break down the old, you had to stop doing things in the old ways. You have to kind of get rid of your aging stars and think afresh about how you, how you, build, how you build a team or how you build a community from the ground up. And I, I think if we can do a little more of that, I think that would kind of take us down, down this path towards sort of collective impact, you know, raised to a new level. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Next, we'll hear from Wendy McGrady, who works with a lot of nonprofits around the country trying to actually raise the money. And now that our scholars have thrown out the gauntlet to say um, how much you need to increase fundraising, tell us how challenging that is and what you're seeing on the ground. Thank you, Stacy. My comments are more along the lines to use Tom's analogy or to continue on Tom's analogy. Uh, my comments are more around how to put the team back together. So that's where I'm going to focus today. As Stacy said, uh, my name is Wendy McGrady. I'm a fundraising consultant with the Curtis Group. Our firm is one of 40 members of the Giving Institute who founded Giving USA Foundation and publishes uh, Giving USA. In addition to being a member of Giving USA's editorial review board, I work with nonprofits every day. My colleagues and I have watched and experience these numbers over the last few years. So I'd like to share just a few uh, observations from our work with you today. How many of you in the room have some role in fundraising for your nonprofits? Okay, so more than half or so. Okay, great. So those of you that are responsible for securing resources for your organization, this data is important. However, what you do with the data and how you integrate it into your strategy may be even more important. What do these trends mean for your organization? How do they help you grow your fundraising capacity and results? I'd like to take just a few minutes uh, again and share our take on some of the numbers and again the observations from our work. First of all, the fact that this is the fourth straight year in increased giving is certainly encouraging. We do know that Giving USA reflects giving in aggregate and that some of you and other nonprofits may not be experiencing the same gains shown here. These are certainly, as has been much discussed, there are certainly, as has been much discussed, uh, gaps between those giving the mega gifts that Patrick referred to, to education and to arts organizations, and those who are still struggling to make annual gifts to the organizations that they love and are passionate about. Uh, particularly those of you heavily reliant on government funding may still be experiencing those challenging times. For now, however, while we've seen modest, for most, however, while we've seen modest gains the last few years, a 4.4% 4, 4 increase in giving this year, the fact is giving is moving back toward its peak in 2007. And, as Patrick has said, if we continue to grow at the same rate, we should hit that mark in the next one to two years. Already, five sector categories have reached their all-time high in giving, giving levels, giving to education, human services, health, foundations, and environment and animals. And giving to arts and culture is only one-tenth of one percent away from reaching its all-time high. When you look at the last few years as a whole, the trends seem even more encouraging. 
total giving since the end of the recession in 2009 is up 22%. And no different than in years past, individual giving is leading the way in terms of recovery. Individual giving between 2011 and 2013 represented 20, sorry, 73% of the growth in giving overall. I know it's always interesting to look uh, at each sector to see the gains in your particular sector and to compare them to your organization's performance. But when you're thinking about applying this information, the sources of charitable gifts are still the most important data to consider and to factor into your development strategy. The pie chart that Patrick showed you doesn't change much from year to, re to year. The reality is that the allocations by source are not a trend resulting from the recession or the recovery. Individual giving has always represented the lion's share of the money given in our country. Think about this. 66% of all households give. More people give than vote. This year, individuals and bequests together represent 80% of all giving. Corporations, 5%. Foundations, 15%. And keep in mind, as Patrick noted, that half of that foundation giving is from private family foundations. So, really, 87% of all the giving is coming from individuals. That's almost 9 out of every $10. Breaking individuals down even further, high net worth individuals who account for only 4% of households give over 50% of the individual gifts. When you think about who's giving, 95% of high net worth individuals give versus 66% of the general population. Giving from family foundations has increased 80% over the last 10 years. So when you're thinking about strategy and tactics for raising the most money, while online giving and giving through social media continue to grow, and while everyone seems to have the next great idea for your fundraising <coughs> events, their results pale in comparison to the return you'll get with a focus on individual major gifts. Bequest giving sees big swings each year and is highly dependent on the settlement of large estates, which include charitable gifts. So the more relevant purpose in looking at bequests for you may be to identify the opportunity in planned giving. If your nonprofit hasn't offered a simple planned giving program and promoted itself as a gift destination, I would encourage you to start now. I say simple because focusing on bequests and the ability of your organization to accept bequests is an easy place to start. And more than 80% of planned gifts are bequests. Corporate giving was down this year, largely, as we've heard, a result of decreases in corporate pre-tax profits. Once again, this year, much of corporate giving is in-kind giving. Even cash gifts, however, may be better classified as marketing expenditures as corporations often give to support causes that align with their marketing strategy as well as their corporate social responsibility goals. So if you don't align with a corporation's mission and goals, highly unlikely that they're going to support your organization in a large way. Foundation giving was up 
for the third year in a row, this year up 5.7% due to their recovering assets and increased grant making. About 15% of all giving comes from foundations. So we all want to think, while well, we all want to think that writing grants and seeking out foundation funds will get us to our goal, and we spend a lot of time behind our desks pursuing those grants, they're not likely to be the largest source of our success. So when you think about these sources, how is your organization reaching out to individuals? How are you developing relationships with them? Not just direct mailing them, not inviting them to golf tournaments, not just counting them as a walker or runner. How are you developing and deepening relationships with your individual donors? Are you able to identify your best prospects? Is your board helping you connect to them? Are you providing your board the opportunities and the tools to engage with your donors? In fundraising, leadership is the most important component and not just your staff leadership. Your board is key. Are you placing priority on getting the right people involved and engaged? Those people who can connect you to the folks that can give major gifts. Think for a moment about why and how people give. Giving USA shows a number of mega gifts this year. Those gifts don't just happen. They take months and sometimes years to cultivate. And the right people, staff and board, are typically involved in those conversations. Major gift donors say they give because they want to make a difference with their gifts. It sounds intuitive, but sometimes we don't respond to that. They say they give because they want to make an impact with their gifts. Are you showing them how their gift is doing just that? Stewardship of current and past donors is just as important as cultivation of new ones. Many of those mega gift donors were not new donors to the organizations that received their gifts. Major gift fundraising is about relationships, not transactions. Giving to public society benefit is up again, much of it due to donor-advised funds, which continue to be a very popular way to give, and which represent 4.3% of total giving. From your perspective, it's important to remember that payout rates from those funds are relatively low. So it may be more difficult to recognize or to steward or to cultivate those donors, but Remember, a check from one of those funds typically indicates a large pool of money that donor still holds in that fund and will likely give in the future, will give in the future. This year we see a continued return to arts, culture, and humanities and education giving, sectors that are highly dependent on individual giving. It appears some donors are migrating back to pre-recession priorities. For human service organizations who may have seen growth during the recession and immediate post-recession years and typically don't have the large staff that education and arts organizations may have, this may require an increased stewardship effort. Are you providing your donors meaningful opportunities to engage with your organization? You've heard that there's a striking correlation between volunteerism and philanthropy meaningful opportunities means different things to different donors. Getting to know them, demonstrating return on their investment, the way they want to see it demonstrated, 
may help you hang on to some of those donors. Finally, I encourage you to share this information with your team, with your board. Download the full report. Share the numbers, certainly, as they are encouraging. But help your board and staff interpret the numbers, determine your response, and integrate the findings into your development plan. I wish you great success. Thanks. Thank you. Now that Patrick suggested that Ruth would be the one person who would be angry at the numbers, you've all probably been wondering why. Ruth McCambridge edits Nonprofit Quarterly, and she'll be our last speaker. And Ruth, can I make sure that you finish by 1.15 so we have time for questions? <laughs> all right. I want to leave you time for questions, so I'm going to try to go through this quickly. It's not so much that I'm angry, but it just feels like um, – wake up and smell the plutocracy. Uh, I, I just don't feel like we're really focusing here. Um, we are in an economy, in a recovery, where um, the top 7% of the, of the population in terms of wealth have um, gained 28% in net, as, in net um, worth while the rest of us have uh, declined 4%. This is not, you know, are we going to ignore that context? The recovery has primarily benefited the very rich in this country. And so when we look at these giving statistics, what we see is, yes, an increase in giving and an increase, a kind of significant increase in mega gifts. Those mega gifts have gone from 1.22 billion last year, or 1.55 billion last year, to 4.22 billion this year. That's a significant increase. If you think that those that that money is going to get anywhere near most of your organizations, you're very sadly mistaken. That that money generally is going to go to very large institutions that the or that the the mega giver is comfortable with. Um, so it may go to elite universities. It may go to elite um, health care institutions. The biggest part of that kind of money is going to go to very big organizations with very well-developed development departments, with development departments that number in the hundreds. Um, so unless you have a development department that numbers in the hundreds, and most of us don't have one that numbers in the ones, <laughs> um, you pretty much, you know, those mega gifts are going to be very much outside of your control. Um, I do want to say that um, I, I have full faith in the, in the nonprofit sector. Um, but this has been a very difficult few years for us. It's been a very difficult last decade for us. So I wanted to, I just want to say um, that, you know, at the very beginning of the recession, N NPQ started tracking a number of organizations that we thought uh, we just wanted to watch how they were going to do during the recession. One of them was called the... Uh, the San Jose Repertory Theater. And I talked to a woman there called Krista Steiner, who was their CFO. 
And she talked to me about all the mechanizations that they had to go through, the very sophisticated projecting, the risk-taking, the capitalization of performances and of their building and their relationship with the local, with the local town. Well, in, during the recession, all of that was entirely unpredictable. It was not within their control at all. So uh, two weeks ago, I saw a notice that the San Jose Repertory Theater, which has been there for 34 years, closed. Um, it's not the only good mid-sized arts organization to have closed in the last year. We've been following them one after another after another, kind of giving up the ghost. So my point is that even though you may see an increase in giving, you need to really understand what that increase of giving means. Because I'm going to tell you a couple of other things that we were, we've been tracking is just the, and, and actually the report tracked this as well, as the number of multi-billion dollar capital campaigns that are being um, that, that are being launched by these very big institutions, universities and healthcare institutions. You know, Harvard, because they're so poor and so in need, launched a $6.5 million one last year when they have 32 billion, a billion, when they have a $32 billion endowment, um, $32 plus billion endowment. Um, that is not neutral uh, to the landscape of giving. And so when you get, for instance, I, I was reading um, one story about, an about a group of organizations, a group of fundraisers that had gotten together to talk about the fact that in Oregon, a, five, a $5 million challenge grant was given to one university. Well, a $5 million challenge grant in Oregon means that you have to match it, and primarily from Oregon. So what does that mean for the rest of the giving in Oregon? It's not that big in the first place. I think in 2012, it was $1.8 billion. Well, so that's a significant portion of the dollars available, right? So, you know, as we look at this, we have to understand that as the economy goes, and Patrick's very good at saying this, that, you know, uh, philanthropy tracks the economy. Well, it doesn't just track the economy in terms of overall so-called growth of the economy, but it tracks it in terms of where that money sits and where it's going to go to. Um, so it, it does it make me angry? It, it concerns me. Um, I feel like I'm not sure what's going to happen to organizations that are marginalized out of relationships with um, people who have enormous amounts of money. And as money more and more gets concentrated in the very few at the top of the economy, that's a pretty insular community. Um, and so I think, you know, to me, it's like a, a tale of two countries that's emerging here, and not just in the economy me generally, but in philanthropy as well. Um, so um, I want to look a little bit just at the mega gifts from last year, because I do want to say, please, you know, don't set your sights on this unless you know Piero Midiar. 
um, or someone similar. Um, and if you're in really good relationship with them, maybe, you know, you'll get a little something. But, you know, in terms of the Amidyars giving this year, they were one of the mega givers last year. Um, and in fact, gave, what, uh, almost a billion dollars to the Hawaii Community Foundation, where presumably it'll be re- um, redistributed, and I love the Hawaii Community Foundation, so hopefully there will be some good stuff in there. But at the same time, um, they made a $225 million grant to something called Hope Lab. Does, any, do, does anybody know what Hope Lab is? Right. Well, this is what I'm talking about. It is where Pam Omidyar used to work. She has a relationship with that institution. You do not have a relationship with Pam Omidyar, okay? So here's, the, here's what I would caution you to understand, that in fact what we're working with here is a relationship problem. The relationship of most of the country has fallen out, we have fallen, most of the country has fallen out of relationship with the very rich in this country, more and more of control of assets, including philanthropic assets, are in their, their hands. Um, and unless we can figure out a way to kind of deal with that and begin to establish that this really is one country and we're all interdependent on each other's welfare, I think we're going to be watching th these two communities get more and more distant. Um, so that's, you know, am I angry? I, I guess I am a little bit. <laughs> I really worry about human services. I, you know, it's not that uh, the, as I think Patrick said, it's not that unemployment, that the number of jobless people has gone down. It's that they've disappeared from view. Um, communities are suffering. Communities that don't have relationships with corporations um, and uh, that, that feel responsible to them, and those are fewer and fewer. And, um, you know, rich individuals that feel responsible to them are kind of sitting out there without access. And I think as a whole sector, it's our responsibility to understand how can this landscape work better. Because it's not working for a good part of the sector and for a good part of the country now. Um, so, uh, you know, ideally, you know, I've heard philanthropy described a number of ways as an equalizer, as a passing, passing gear. I don't think that's what it's acting as for in good part now. And, um, and you know, I think, it, I think it can. I think it needs to be redirected. Thank you. Okay, we have very limited time for questions, but we do have 15 minutes. So I'm going to ask you to, first of all, if you get the microphone, wait for the microphone. When you get it, speak directly into it. Identify yourself and your affiliation. So questions. Okay, while I'm waiting for a question, let me just say this is kind of depressing in a way, the, the presentation. No, in terms of, in terms of, and maybe in the course of answering other questions, you can address this. Uh, you know, relationship does sound like it's quite central to the fundraising uh, uh, effort and giving and so forth. Um, and of course, relationship is absolutely central to civil society, right? And the, the indications of civil society, religious affiliation, uh, volunteering and so forth as that declines. Um, 
individual giving is not exactly robust. Um, you know, that's, that's a very depressing prospect. And Ruth, you know, I think you're right that I have faith in the nonprofit sector too, but we all know that there are many forces in the nonprofit sector that, that are uh, cutting against relationship and pushing toward mechanization, uh, strategic, top-down, uh, uh, professionalization and so forth and so on uh, and as you as you uh, undercut relationship aren't you in fact you know undercutting uh, the you know very real possibility of civil society in America yes please I really don't have a question I really don't oh my name is Wayne Young and with the uh, my name is Wayne Young, and I'm with the Port of Harlem Gambian Education Partnership. And I just wanted to say that I thought Ruth's comments, I don't have a question, but it helped put everything in perspective. So if she had something else to add, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know something? Can I? Ruth's role. Uh, yes. Um, I do want to say something in response to both of you because, um, you know, one of the things about the big new givers, Patrick and I talked about this the other day too, is that a lot of them are new money and they give in a different way, which means that they want to decide what is going to happen with their money. It's not like you go to them and say, I have this good thing to do, will you fund me? It's that they decide what they want to see done and if they can't get someone to take that basically what's a contract, they're, they're going to do it themselves. They'll, you know, so it's, you know, it really is a, it's a relationship that is top down at this point. And in my mind, very scary for democracy. My name is Gasby Brown, and I am a practicing, uh, hi Patrick, uh, philanthropic consultant and also on the faculty of the fundraising school at Indiana University's Lilly School of Philanthropy. And my question is about uh, building a culture of philanthropy of which, you all touched upon, but how do you, what ideas do you have for building a culture of philanthropy among the middle class, since you did uh, speak about this, uh, the disparity between the connection uh, with grassroots organizations or even mid or larger size uh, organizations that are doing good work. So how do we build that culture of philanthropy? That's a great question. That really yeah. gets to what we were just discussing. In other words, let's get beneath the numbers and talk about some of these underlying cultural, social things that we might be able to influence in order to rebuild giving. Yeah. So some of our colleagues uh, have worked on this project that looks at the transmission of philanthropic values across generations using panel study data. And what we're finding is the key variable is parents talking to their kids about philanthropy. Now, this is not a radical concept, but it works. And in fact, it's the single most important thing you can do. If you want your child to be a philanthropist, talk to them about it. And I mean, we have, there's other analogies that might be more humorous, um, but uh, you know, this is, you know, I think a key, in many ways, it's a key American value, but you need to make it a key household value. Anybody else? Yeah, please, Tom. Yeah. Well, I, I would certainly second what Patrick said, but, but you know, how do you get the families to, to have that conversation? I really think we have to be starting at the community level, and what I've been working to do is to find some communities with – find some mayors and civic leaders who would really take this issue very seriously and say, 
let's step up. We really have to create a different kind of civic culture in our community that would completely so transform you know, outcomes in education, levels of volunteering, levels of giving, perhaps tax policy and other policies as well. But I think it's a longer term endeavor than the, the typical kind of quick fixes that are proposed. So Patrick has spoken to household uh, culture. Tom's spoken to sort of community culture. Since my work is with organizations, I would say organization by organization, we have to build that culture. So whether you're a, a school or a, a university or a, a church or whatever, you've got to show your donors, many of them new donors, donors who aren't used to being philanthropic, they're giving because they like what you're doing for their kids or they like what you're doing for the people down the street, you've got to show them results in order for them to continue investing. And they are looking at it as an investment. Uh, whether they've been giving for a long time or whether they're new donors, they are looking at it as an investment. So showing the results, showing them meaningful results is, some, is a way that I think you can build that culture. Terrific. Yes. Good afternoon. My name is Daniela Foster, and I'm a director of public-private partnerships at the State Department, and I've spent a lot of time setting up our global philanthropy working group. So I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. One, on, on the corporate side, I work with a lot of corporate foundations and companies, and we're seeing a shift, too, that they, they also want to be involved in the design phase and not just have people come to them and say, hey, fund this. So have you noticed shifts in terms of what types of things they're funding, thematic areas? And I would also ask the same question on the international front. I know disaster relief was big, but do you see any key trends coming up on that front as well? Thank you. Well, one of the things, uh, we did a study several years ago, so the state is a little stale, but on corporate giving and, and what was kind of evolving patterns in this. And one of the things we found was that corporations were doing more and more what they call strategic corporate giving. And, and by strategic, they didn't mean strategic necessarily in terms of the same way that you and I might interpret this. This was really a code word for correlating their corporate giving with their corporate profitability. Mm -hmm. So that they are giving <laughs> to um, a couple of things. One, uh, education, local education, to build the labor force because it's kind of a long-term strategy for profitability. You have to have good workers. But uh, shorter-term strategies are things that uh, giving to uh, sectors that are affiliated with their core products and uh, trying to win over their customers and shareholders and workers, but particularly the customers, um, through their corporate uh, philanthropic endeavors in order to, in, in some ways, increase their, their profitability over time. So I think that's, um, that's a change because I think 40 years ago, 20 years ago, corporate giving would have largely gone to the arts and to uh, you know, more civil society things locally, and we're seeing this uh, it was a pretty radical transformation, I think, in how they've mm -hmm. approached philanthropy. I'm Mina David Oz from the Center for Public Integrity. And Tom, you spoke about the collective impact projects that you're doing around the country. And also, Wendy, you had said that organizationally you're working with 
uh, organization. So my question is, um, you know, have you seen more nonprofits um, among the million, um, you know, public charities in the country coming together to uh, really uh, consolidate mission in some some aspects and uh, approach funders as kind of more of a unified front? I think um, what we hear from a lot of funders is also just you know, uh, making the choice between uh, too many with this overlapping mission. Yeah, Stacy, you ran a an op-ed, I think, in the latest issue on this question, did you not? Something about more, uh, more cooperative and more mergers and acquisitions. Absolutely, and, so um, and it's well worth reading. Um, yeah. If you haven't had a chance to, I'll make it available free, um, and really looking at the fact that, you know, there isn't really even sort of the merger and acquisition kind of business. We don't even talk about that kind of thing in the nonprofit world. Um, and as a result, so many efforts get started and struggle for too long, and it's not good for anybody, um, and it's really wasting effort. Um, so, you know, I think we all need to find some ways to solve that problem um, and find some way to you know, I think it's hard for to tell any nonprofit that's just trying to get started, though. Why is it? Why isn't your idea the best idea ever? Um, and most people don't want to collaborate in the very beginning. As well, like this. There's nonprofit ego, and then there's donor ego that they want to start the best and greatest yeah, thing as well. And. I think that's. I think you're so, right. We need to talk about it a lot more. So, so Ruth, you're now going to say that we need more mega institutions and organizations and fewer <laughs> small ones, right? No. No, actually, but I I, I want to say that I think everybody has the tendency to um, approach this issue from a kind of a negative viewpoint, and I just don't think it's true. I mean, when you look at some of the work that's been done by national networks of nonprofits over the last few years, it's it's phenomenal. So you look at um, what LISC has done, what um, Neighborhood Reinvestment has done, what the Association of Community Health Centers have done, what NAMI has done. They've affected policy. They've affected funding. They've gotten, you know, they've worked with philanthropy to be sure that there's local giving going on. I mean, you know, so I think that this kind of constant drone about, nah, there are too many nonprofits, they don't work together well, blah, 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 I think is a little bit of an overstatement. I've, I mean, I've seen some phenomenal work get done in the worst of circumstances and in the blink of an eye, actually, um, particularly around stuff like foreclosures and the development of the health centers into, into health homes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cynthia. Hi, I'm Cynthia Schumann-Ottinger from the Aspen Institute Program Hi. Program on Philanthropy and Social Innovations uh, Nonprofit Data Project. Um, a mouthful. I wanted to ask about the data itself and how more transparent, accessible data on giving would help you in your job of collecting the data annually. Well, I'm all in favor of more data, bigger data, and faster. Um, you know, one of the one of the challenges with Giving USA is, uh, you know, we release this in typically the middle of June, and we would love to be able to release it sooner. But 
we rely on the IRS for a lot of our data, and uh, so much of that's not available until the end of March, early April, and then we need some time to analyze it, write it up, and so on and so forth. And that's with a lag. I mean, that's with a two-year lag. So um, I think, you know, as Tom talked about, the e-filing, I think, would be very helpful for the 990s. Um, you know, I, I think one of the, one of the challenges uh, in the nonprofit sector is there's a lot of data that's out there that uh, fundraising consulting firms have access to, uh, you know, that they're getting paid and other consultants are getting paid to gather this data, and nonprofits are paying them to gather this data, whereas it would cost us a lot of money to raise the money to get that same kind of data. So, you know, I, I don't know how you do these types of data sharing, but I think that's the kind of thing that uh, could be helpful as well as uh, obviously getting the IRS to uh, do things big, bigger, better, faster, cheaper, and more transparent as well. Any last thoughts? We're at the almost at the 130 mark. 30 seconds worth of commentary? No? Are we played out? I would just like to say, okay, I Wendy. would like to leave it on a, an encouraging note. And since we've all sort of hovered since around this. Ruth was negative, as oh, usual. I was not. Ruth's <laughs> <laughs> no, last comment said we're all being too negative. Is it? Uh, no, I think we've all sort of hovered around this concept of relationships. And I would just like yeah. to remind you all, as Ruth has, that so most of you probably aren't those organizations receiving those mega gifts of $180 million or more. Um, but you all could be the organizations receiving a $100,000 gift or a $25,000 gift. I would venture to say many of you in this room would consider a $10,000 or a $25,000 gift a major gift for your organization. So as we, as we all sort of come back to this point of relationships, it's not out of your realm to think you can develop relationships with those kinds of people who can make a major impact in your organization. Okay, now Ruth wants to be positive. I, I, I do. Okay. I want to be positive okay. and try to reclaim my, my, yeah. Right. Um, I do want to say, I think the the discussion, and, and um, Bill has mentioned this a couple of times, he's a little obsessed with strategic philanthropy, admit it. Um, but uh, the discussion in philanthropy uh, around, you know, that strategic mean basically at this point is code for top down, as Patrick said. I mean, I think that until we begin to turn that around, we're going to have serious uh, problems of democracy relative to philanthropy. Um, and so I do want to say that I think it's perfectly within our capacity to do so. I've seen people begin to question some of their precepts just in the last few months. Um, and so God only knows how that happened, except that Bill won't be quiet when he's supposed to. <laughs> but, um, but I do think it is up to us to question philanthropy. I think that's where we started, that we have to question it. We have to be critical of it. We can't just say, oh, aren't you wonderful for giving us this money? You have to say, but let's talk about the way that you're in relationship with communities when you do um, provide money and whether you're in relationship with the right communities to make the right kind of change, that kind. Terrific. Very good. Well, and on that on that 
comment about the importance of criticizing philanthropy, let me remind you that's our next panel. Ben is sitting right there on the aisle. There he is. Wave, Ben. Uh, he is the young man who, as I say, right, you've got to go read the article uh, uh, on The Atlantic uh, that he wrote about the importance of it. Very, very good article, terrific article, and thoroughly based in history. I mean, he actually believes that something happened before the last strategic plan at your organization, which is just like a remarkable historical depth. Um, anyway, so, uh, but we'll, we'll get back to you with the date for that. Meanwhile, let's thank uh, this panel for a terrific conversation.